0: The elders at a recent meeting went through a, a SWOT test uh, where we identified some of the strengths, weaknesses, um, opportunities, and threats of Antioch. And one of the strengths that uh, came up right away was the people of Antioch, you folks, uh, whom all of the elders agreed are remarkable for your intelligence, your ability to reason well, uh, your commitment to truth in general and to biblical truth in particular and uh, your, your willingness to be challenged and stretched on a, on a Sunday morning and at other times. And I, I say this to you this morning not to puff you up, but because uh, as I tackle some difficult issues in, in today's sermon and mess with what for many, are, uh, many evangelicals are some sacred cows, uh, I wanna prepare you in advance to live into that uh, view of you that the elders already have, okay? Um, And, and I really mean that. Um, I'm going to get a little personal. I'm gonna get a little political. Um, and I'm gonna talk about a subject that's uh, kind of taboo in, in much of the church, both because of the sensitive nature of the subject and, and also because of the insensitivity with, with, with which much of the evangelical church has a, approached this personal and private uh, issue. But we're in a series on the Decalogue, uh, what we call the Ten Commandments, what the Hebrews called the Decalogue, which means ten words. And we've already learned in in past sermons uh, a number of things. We've learned from Pastor Pete that this is not so much a series of commands from God, do this or else, but rather a way of God instructing His people into living more fully, living better lives. For the original hearers of the Decalogue, uh, it was an encouragement to live as free people rather than as slaves. Um, to live into a culture of life, an abundant life, an eternal life, rather than as part of a culture of death like the one they'd known in Egypt. For us as Christ followers, <clears throat> it's an encouragement to live into his inbreaking kingdom rather than into the broken world systems of which, which we inhabit. And to live as people who recognize that we're part of a creation that is being reconciled, rather than as people who are indifferent to the fate of God's good world. Uh, as we come to the sixth commandment, do not murder, we come to a section of commandments that have to do with our relationship with other people, and we find that they're fairly tight, succinct, and even punchy. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not covet. And I want to suggest to you that um, what was on those stone tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain were in fact nothing more than 10 words. Okay? So in the ancient Hebrew, much as in a lot of languages today, but not so much English, you could take a verb like murder and you could put it in the command form And the subject would be pretty much implied, all of you. And then you could, with a suffix or a prefix, I'm not sure which in the ancient Hebrew, you could make it negative. So that what we require three or four words to say, thou shalt not murder, would in fact have been just a single Hebrew word. You see what I'm saying? Okay. And we should also discuss the fact that when Moses came off the mountain, meeting with God for 40 days... He didn't at that moment sit down and write out all of Genesis and all of Exodus that that had happened up to that point. Okay, that's not what Mosaic authorship means. Um, In fact, when we say that Moses was the author, the the human author, of the inspired first five books of the Bible, um, that doesn't mean that he ever wrote it out. Moses lived in a very oral culture. And so for that oral culture, the revelation of God to Moses that we understand as the five first books of the Bible was in fact an oral tradition. And it was probably decades or even centuries later that somebody, not Moses, wrote this all down. Now that may mess with our sensibilities of what it means to be an author, but it it doesn't undermine at all either the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch or the divine inspiration of it, okay? All of which is to say that, like in last week when Pete took us through uh, honor your father and your mother, the additional tag, so that you might have long life or that it may go well with you or whatever, that was not on the stone tablet, okay? The stone tablets probably really contain nothing more than 10 words. And yet it would be almost impossible to overstate the importance of those 10 words and of these ex-slaves to whom those first 10 words were given. There's no legal document in history that has had a greater impact on legal systems and even worldviews within Western civilization and the world as a whole. And it turns out that the Jews were the first tribe or nation to even give the world a moral code of any kind or even a sense of oughtness. And that flows out of the fact that unlike all of the cultures that preceded them and that were contemporary with them, these Jews were the first people to see life not as a series of endless cycles, but as a directional thing with a beginning and an end point. So a whole lot of views of the world that we take for granted really originated at Mount Sinai in the giving of the Decalogue. <clears throat> Even ideas like meaning and purpose, that what I do today has implications for the future, that how I treat others matters, those are things we take for granted today, but we're new with the giving of the Decalogue to the followers of Moses, okay? And so all of that is to say that uh, the Decalogue is an is, is a incredibly timeless set of wisdom and morality. So I want to read a fairly lengthy portion from historian Thomas Cahill. Those who do not believe in God may well have reached the end of their rope by now. For surely the first commandments, the ones about God, will strike them as meaningless. But let the unbeliever focus on the commandments about man and ask himself which he would drop and what he would add. Here I think both believer and unbeliever are brought to heal. There's nothing to add, really, nothing to subtract. Oh, I could add something about ecology, perhaps, or about racism or sexism, but these are all concerns born of recent times. But if I can peer through the mists of history and see the begrimed, straightforward faces straining upward to the terrors of Mount Sinai, and if I can imagine this immense throng of simple souls trudging through the whole of history, all the ordinary people down the ages in need of moral guidance, in all the incredibly various situations and cultures that this planet has known, it must be admitted that it would be fairly impossible to improve on the Decalogue as we have it. The sins it catalogues are the great sins. And those it does not mention explicitly, such as withholding sustenance from those who have nothing, can be deduced from it which is what the Israelites did almost immediately by, for instance, categorizing society's abandonment of widows and orphans as murder. Even as far from Sinai in time and civilization as Central Park at the turn of the millennium, there are few who do not know that if we were to keep these commandments, our world would be an entirely different place. This is such a simple, uncontestable thing to say that it sounds banal. But for all our resourcefulness, We have never yet managed to do it. Let me say a little bit about what he said there at the start, that the atheist has trouble with those first three commandments. It turns out that in reality, while the atheist can live as moral a life as any of the rest of us, the person who denies the existence of God cannot even rationally defend the existence of a moral code. That is, if there is no transcendent lawgiver, capital L, God, then anything goes. I can make up my own set of right and wrong. But if, in fact, words such as right and wrong, good and evil, fair and unfair, just and unjust, should and ought, if those words which fill our conversation every day have any meaning, there must be someone outside it all that has a standard that is objective that we all must follow. I do want to read a little more from Cahill. This is much later at the end of his book, The Gifts of the Jews. He says, Unbelievers might wish to stop for a moment and consider how completely God, this Jewish God of justice and compassion, undergirds all our values and that it is just possible that human effort without this God is doomed to certain failure. Humanity's most extravagant dreams are articulated by the Jewish prophets. In Isaiah's vision, true faith is no longer confined to one nation, but all the nations stream to the house of Yahweh, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may learn to beat our swords into plowshares. All who share this outrageous dream of universal brotherhood, peace, and justice, who dream the dreams and see the visions of the great prophets, must bring themselves to contemplate the possibility that without God... There is no justice. So, today we come to the sixth commandment, Exodus twenty thirteen: You shall not murder. Just as in our legal systems, there are a number of distinctions made when somebody dies. You can be charged with uh, first degree murder or third degree manslaughter or criminal negligence, or we can all conclude that it was simply an accident that was a shame. Just in the, in the same way, the, Hebrew lang- the ancient Hebrew language had several different words for kill. And the one used here in Exodus is clearly the one that means murder and involves intent. As, as we'll see in a minute, uh, and this is very important, <laughs> the, fact that, uh, the, the fact that something is legal in a particular nation or state does not equate to its being in agreement with the moral code of God. That makes sense. Legal and moral are not the same thing. Okay? Um, So, now for the first bit of bad news. And that is that the history of our species, humanity's history, is replete with murder. Uh, One of the four relationships broken at the fall is man's relationship with other people, right? And we don't look much further after the fall. In fact, it's in Genesis 4 that we come to the murder uh, by Cain of his brother Abel. It says, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The first generation following the fall. If we go just two chapters, but many, many generations further along, in Genesis 6-5, we come to the account of God's judgment of almost all humanity at the flood. And in verse 6-5, we read, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And we understand that that God looked out and there were probably hundreds of thousands of people by this time and God found only eight of them that were worth saving. Now, because we live at the back end of three millennia of people being instructed with the Decalogue and understanding that there's a moral code that we ought to adhere to, and because we live in a nation that was founded upon Christian principles, it's hard for us to imagine that level of depravity where everybody was killing one another to such an extent. The people of that time of Noah's day had had violated the two commissions they were given. The first was to be fruitful and multiply. The problem wasn't that they weren't procreating. I'm pretty sure they were doing that just fine. It was that they didn't have a sense of the value of human lives and they were killing one another left and right. The other commission that God gave them was to fill the earth, to disperse and fill the earth. And they clearly hadn't done that either, which is why God was able to judge them with a flood that covered the entire range of humanity, the Mesopotamian Plain, and, and killed everybody except the eight souls on the ark. So here's a little parenthesis. I, I have to do it because I'm, a, I'm an apologist, that's what I do. <laughs> The the idea that the flood of Noah's day was global in its uh, scope is a very modern misinterpretation of of the ancient Hebrew. Um, And the only reason I'd point that out is because the idea that the entire earth was flooded and that the geography and paleontology we see there in, in the revelation from creation is explainable in terms of a single flood a few thousand years ago is arguably one of the most... Uh, one of the largest unnecessary obstacles that the church sometimes puts in the place of people in their search for what the Bible really has to say. So, so, so people don't come to faith in Christ because they can't get past this very unscientific and bad interpretive idea that the whole earth was flooded. That's not what the ancient Hebrews says. And we don't need to be putting... Un- unnecessary obstacles in the way of people coming to understand the real claims of Scripture, which is that Jesus was divine, came to earth, died on the cross in our place, and was raised again from the dead and is reconciling all things to himself, okay? Um, Okay, so this is a parenthesis within a (laughs) parenthesis. If you haven't been with us for very long, you should probably know that there was a time, I want to say like three to six years ago, when we had a Q and A service every Sunday after the regular service, and we videotaped them, and, and so whoever preached that day, whether it was a pastor or an elder or a guest speaker, answered questions from the audience, and that was because we firmly believe that God and Christianity and the Bible are all big enough to handle all objections and doubts that are brought to it. Okay. Uh, and, and those were all videotaped and are still available on YouTube, so if you ever want to learn more about why you shouldn't consider the flood to be a global phenomenon, you can probably find me answering a question about that uh, on the World Wide Web. Okay? So now I need you to come back, focus with me. <laughs> we're talking about the, the humanity's history of, of murder, right? So following the giving of the Decalogue at Mount Sinai, Israel's history is pretty checkered. And, and they were not very good at continuing to continually obey the commandments. In fact, while Moses was interacting with God on Mount Sinai for 40 days, the people following Moses were busy breaking at least five and arguably all ten of the commandments, right? Moses himself was a murderer prior to God's call upon his life. And much later, King David, who along with Moses is, is the revered, Father of, of Israel um, himself was guilty of murder as he arranged for the, for the death of Uriah the Hittite in order to cover up the fact that he, David, had, had had an adulterous relationship with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Despite all of those failures of Israel, there couldn't be a greater contrast between Israel and the preceding and contemporary nations with regard to the idea of there being a moral code and specifically of the sanctity of every human life uh, in God's mind. So throughout the remainder of Old Testament history, God is continually calling his people back to his understanding of the value of every individual. And that call carries like a refrain throughout Scripture, and Jesus picks it up himself and refers to several categories of people that that God's people need to take care of. And those are the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the inmate, and the poor, right? You all know this. So fast forward to the time of Jesus. The Jews, who were never the dominant culture anywhere, are now living in a dominant culture that is Uh, one of violence and death, the Roman Empire. The killing not only of unborn babies, but of unwanted babies after they're born is rampant in the Roman Empire. And it's into this generation of Jews that the Lord himself comes with news of a new kingdom, one in which the weak and powerless have hope and one in which death and sorrow are vanquished. And so from the very beginning of the church, the followers of Christ again displayed a consistent ethic of life. They took in orphans and widows, not only their own, but even those of their enemies, the Romans, and they stood against the culture of death surrounding them and against the practice of killing unborn babies. And from the time a few centuries later, when Christianity uh, supplanted the pantheism of the Roman and Greek empires, Western civilization ever since has consistently maintained that it's wrong to murder, to carry out abortion, that infanticide, neglect of the elderly, and every other form against persons created in the image of God is immoral and wrong. In fact, the general truth of what I just said is so true that when we look back in history and see anomalies times and events which, which go against the moral law of God, things like the Inquisition and the Crusades and the transatlantic slave trade and the witch trials, we say to ourselves, what in the world were they thinking? What, what were the Christians thinking at those times in history? So today, we in America have our own set of legalized violations of God's command not to murder. Since 1973, the killing of the unborn has been legal in America, and more than 60 million unborn children created in the image of God have been killed, 10 times what Hitler and the the Nazis murdered in the Holocaust. Today in Oregon, it is legal to request a lethal injection to terminate one's own life or the life of a loved one who can't make such a decision. And we can see from the example of European countries that have traveled this road prior to us that the right to die soon becomes the duty to die. So in 2017, in the Netherlands, there were 150,000 total deaths. Of those, 40,000 were physician assisted. And only a very small percentage of those 40,000 were what's called palliative Sedation, where the patients involved were actually already actively dying and experiencing uh, unbearable and uncontrollable pain and suffering. So what that leaves is that the leading cause of death in the Netherlands today is having a physician give you a lethal injection even though you are not yet dying. Okay, Wesley J. Smith says... Since euthanasia was first decriminalized in the Netherlands, the country's doctors have traveled a very dark road. Along with this, of course, we see a skyrocketing suicide rate here in our own country and in other countries around the world. When a nation's laws and teachings fail to present a consistent, true, and biblical understanding of the innate value of every life, is it any wonder that its people, and particularly its young people, Take to heart the contrary message that some human lives don't really matter. So, we today live in a culture of death that's not a whole lot different than the Roman Empire of the first century church. And we, as followers of Christ, are called to be radically countercultural in all of this. Last week, in talking about honoring your father and mother, Pete shared a a quote from Stanley Hauerwast, and it Bears repeating here. In a hundred years, if Christians are identified as people who do not kill their children or the elderly, we will have done well. So I want to take a minute to recognize again that I really appreciate the folks of Antioch. I know how many of you are participants in adopting children and in foster care. And recently, many of you who don't really do either of those things yourself have have come up with creative ways of supporting those within our community that do. Um, But while I can praise you for that, can we all admit that the church as a whole in America has done a very poor job of radically distinguishing itself from this culture of death in which we live? Can we agree on that? So brothers and sisters, there's probably never been a moment in American history when it has been more important for Christ followers to rightly grasp the critical distinction between what it means to be an American and what it means to be a Christian. When it comes to the government itself, our government deserves, uh, you know, a fairly strict and stern indictment, at least from a position of commitment to God's understanding of a biblical ethic of life. And it turns out that that commitment, that that indictment, is entirely bipartisan. To be sure, one of our dominant political parties stands in a very unbiblical position when it comes to the issue of the rights of the unborn human person. But portions of the other party and many within the church, while rightly affirming life on the issues of abortion and euthanasia, <clears throat> have a very poor track record and stance when it comes to some of the other categories of people of central concern to God as portrayed in Scripture, including such people as inmates and immigrants. There's a sense in which we've gotten what we deserve. If our government is putting forth laws that are completely immoral in God's eyes, it's partly because when it comes to election time and such, we have placed other issues, like our economic prosperity and our safety and a whole lot of other things that God tells us not to fear for. We allow those issues to, no. (laughs) We allow those issues to take precedence over issues that ought to be much more important to us, like the sanctity of lives, which our government is running roughshod over. Okay, Um, one of the the passages that AP shared with you was Ephesians 4.17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And the point I want to make here is that this this, uh, letter by Paul and the Holy Spirit to the church at Ephesus, the folks that were reading this letter were not primarily Jews living in a Gentile culture they themselves were Gentiles, okay? So if if this was translated to our day, God would be saying to us, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Americans do in the futility of their thinking. God is calling us to be Christian first rather than going the way of our culture and our government in unchristian ways. You're still with me? A good friend of ours who spoke at some of the early justice conferences, Walter Brueggemann puts it this way, the prophetic tasks of the church are to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion, to grieve in a society that practices denial, and to express hope in a society that lives in despair. So I do want to talk a little bit more about abortion. i mean an enviable position, the same one I was in the last time I preached, which is that Pete had a short sermon last week. And so his unused minutes are rolling over to me. (laughs) But but I'm going to need all of those minutes because when I come to a topic like abortion, there's so much emotion involved and it's such a personal and private thing that some of you are going to be tempted to hear me say something I didn't say or to wish I say something I really don't have time to say but should say. And so I really do need and pray for your grace on this issue. But before I can even talk about abortion, I need to come at it from a different angle because I am not qualified to talk about abortion, in part because I'm a middle-class white male. But the fact of the matter is that none of us Certainly none of us who understand what the gospel really is are qualified to talk about abortion from a position of judgment, okay? And that's because Jesus not only commanded us not to judge others in Matthew 7, 1, but because he also raised the standard quite a bit with regard to this, the sixth commandment. And so here's some more bad news. We've all violated the commandment the prohibition against murder in fact we've probably all violated all 10 of the commandments but when we come to the passage which the other passage which ap read for us Matthew 5 21 22 Jesus says you've heard that it was said to the people long ago do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment but i tell you that anyone who is angry without cause with his brother will be subject to judgment Um, I want to share with you a little bit from the Heidelberg Catechism. So a catechism is a teaching manual that involves question and answer. And the Heidelberg Catechism comes from the 16th century German Reformed Church. And it deals with this commandment in questions 105, 106, and 107. Question 106, the question is, but does this commandment speak only of killing? The answer... Again, this is kind of an editorial on the passage I just, the scripture passage I just read. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Uh, the very next question in the catechism is, is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? The answer is no. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, He commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness to him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. So the fact of the matter is, the gospel is pretty clear on this, that it's a completely level playing field. And and here's where I really get personal. Relative to a perfectly holy God, all of us are in the same condition as Charles Manson or Ted Bundy or any other murderer you want to name. Romans 23 puts it this way, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Reverend Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. said, there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. He went on to say, whenever we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. So we are all sinners in need of grace, and in God's eyes, there is no hierarchy of sins. Whether or not we've ever actually murdered anybody in a legal sense, we have all harbored the attitudes at the root of murder, anger and envy. And so this brings up another problematic similarity between our day and that of Jesus. By the time Jesus was incarnate, there was a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees who were very legalistic. They had taken the 10 words from Moses' tablets and made of them something like 638 rules, all of them involving visible external behaviors. And by doing this, the Pharisees were able to follow these many detailed rules and claim to be righteous while pointing out violations of these rules in others and condemning them as unrighteous. And the clear point of the New Testament Gospels is that Jesus himself reached out with compassion, healing, forgiveness, and restoration to the very most unrighteous people of his day. Meanwhile, he had some pretty nasty things to say about and to the self-righteous Pharisees. And so the question is, is the church of our day day behaving on issues like abortion and homosexuality more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees? It's a rhetorical question, and I think most of you have experienced the Pharisaical approach to these issues. Uh, Many of you, like me, probably grew up in a church where a Christian man was defined as one who didn't drink or smoke or kiss girls who do. Many of you have experienced churches in which the discerning between who's gonna be part of the kingdom and who's out is as simple as figuring out which political party they vote for, right? Okay? At this point, if I had enough time, I'd talk about a very problematic statement called the Nashville Statement that came out uh, a year or so ago by leading evangelicals that was a very pharisaical document when it comes to the issue of LGBTQ. Nothing like the compassion that Jesus would be showing to those same people today, and yet representing the evangelical church in America. But more to the point of this sermon, have we approached the issue of abortion from a stance of judgment and self-righteousness more than from a stance of justice and compassion? Again, if you've been with us uh, through the planting of the Justice Conference and such, this'll be a little familiar to you as well. But there's a single set of Greek words in the New Testament that has to do with either justice or righteousness, just, righteous. And and that word is dikaios and and it's uh, dikaiosune. And it'll be translated variously as righteous or just uh, depending on the context. But the fact of the matter is that almost, maybe, maybe never in the New Testament when we read this word, does it have in mind the idea of personal, individual, moral purity. Instead, every time we read this word, we ought to understand that it involves our relationships with others and means more, has more to say about justice in those relationships than about individual purity. And we really should understand it as meaning shalom, this this Hebrew word that takes in peace and rightness in all of the possible dimensions of it. And so in a passage that many of you may have memorized at some point in your life, Matthew 6.33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his, it's usually righteousness, right there we should understand that what's really at issue here is that we should be seeking his kingdom and his justice, his reconciliation of all relationships, and his shalom, and then all these other things, the daily concerns of what to eat and where, will be given to you. So so why do I say all of this? Because when it comes to the issue of taking the life of unborn persons, the church has tended to take a pharisaical stance, one that looks at my own individual purity and points fingers out at those who don't share that same purity and to treat it from a position of morality and self-righteousness rather than as a justice issue in which there are multiple victims. So we talk a lot about justice here at Antioch and we birth these justice conferences that are changing the way the church speaks about social justice worldwide, but we don't spend a lot of time talking about abortion. We talk about sex trafficking and racial injustice and mass incarceration and immigration and the list goes on and on. We don't talk about abortion, but there's a reason for that. And that is that the culture around us is deaf to the churches talking about abortion because we have done it from a position of personal righteousness and judgmentalism rather than from an issue of justice. So hopefully, as the Justice Conference continues, we'll earn the right to get back into the conversation uh, on a larger scale. But because the taking of, one's un, of the life of one's unborn baby is contrary to God's natural law, there are natural and very negative consequences for all that are involved. The victims of abortion include not just the dead baby, but also the mother, the father, the grandparents, and the rest of the community. And so a just and compassionate approach to this issue would mean not making a villain of the mother contemplating abortion or the father, but extending compassion to them as fellow victims of the brokenness in which we all share. With regard to the the mother herself, good research shows that the natural consequences of having an abortion include the possibility of immediate physical complications and infection, the possibility of future uh, infertility, an increase in the likelihood of miscarriages in a later desired pregnancy, Increased incidence of breast cancer and of autoimmune disease, broken relationships of all kind, obviously, and also guilt, in some instances, lifelong guilt. So if we were able to compassionately share such truths with a fellow sinner in need of reconciliation, that would be a far more Christ-like approach to dealing with women considering abortion than the pharisaical shaming and judgment that has too often been the church's uh, posture toward the scared young girl facing an undesired pregnancy. Okay? You with me? Okay? <laughs> so I'd be remiss if I didn't take this time, um, because we're talking about this, to give you a little bit of a primer on why God sees the unborn baby as a human being with just as much value and, and having just as much right to live as you and I. <clears throat> So it begins in the scriptures with with our verse for the day, you should not uh, commit murder. But as for the idea that the unborn baby is a human being deserving of uh, protection, one of the passages we go to is Psalm 139, 13 through 16. It's not the only one, but it's the only one I'm gonna share this morning. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. and, and, and scripture is pretty clear that the unborn are just as human as you and I are. But the science is actually arguably more clear about this. Uh, there's no controversy among scientists as to when life begins. As more and Persaud write, a zygote in the be- is the beginning of a new human being. Human development begins at fertilization, the process during which a male gamete or sperm unites with a female gamete or oocyte to form a single cell called a zygote. This highly specialized totipotent cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. People are human as soon as they're conceived, not at some later time like birth. Even former Planned Parenthood president, Dr. Alan Guttmacher, who was a lifelong abortion advocate, was perplexed that anyone, much less any scientist, would question this fact that life begins at conception. He writes, this all seems so simple and evident that it is difficult to picture a time when it wasn't part of the common knowledge in his book, The Meaning of Life, or Life in the Making. So when it comes, if when it comes to abortion, if what is being killed is not a human being, then no justification is required for killing it. But if, as both scientific unanimity and biblical worldview clearly assert, what is being killed is a human being, then almost no justification is sufficient. Now, I understand that there are complex situations where abortion is justifiable, particularly in cases where the, the life of the mother is threatened by the pregnancy. Okay? So don't hear me as insensitive to the very rare cases where the justification is real and not simply the convenience or, uh, or career choices of the mother or the couple involved. Um, but as it turns out, the real issue, governmentally, turns upon the argument about whether the unborn human being is a person or not. and. <laughs> The arguments advanced in favor of advocating abortion uh, fall into about four categories, which uh, fall into the acronym of SLED, if you want to be able to, uh, to reference this easily. And the first is size. Yes, embryos are smaller than newborns and adults, but why would that be relevant? Do we really think that larger people are more valuable than smaller people? Most women are smaller than most males, but that doesn't mean that they deserve fewer rights. Size doesn't equal value. As far as level of development, yes, embryos and fetuses are less developed than the adults they will become. But again, why would this matter? A 13-year-old girl is more developed than a 5-year-old girl, but we don't confer different rights on that basis. Neither does self-awareness matter. Six-week-old infants, Alzheimer's patients, people who are reversibly comatose, and even people who are asleep don't have the capacity to perform normal human mental functions, but they still qualify as human beings. Environment shouldn't make a difference either. Where you are has no bearing on who you are, and your value doesn't change when you move locations. In the same way, an an eight-inch journey down the birth canal doesn't transform a non-human into a human. And then degree of dependency. If viability and independence is what makes us human, then toddlers and those who depend on insulin or kidney machines, to just name a few, are not human either. And of course, you realize that that's absurd. So the final conclusion is that there is no morally significant difference that's ever been advanced between the embryo you once were and the adult you are today. So if you have a desire for more information on the sanctity of life and how you as a Christian can defend it, be sure to see me or one of the pastors because we can give you resources to do that. So as I conclude here, uh, I've given you a whole lot of bad news and talked about some dark things today and and probably made you a little uncomfortable. But there is very, very, very good news, okay? The bad news is we're all sinners, we're all murderers. In fact, we, we have no better standing uh, that qualifies us for salvation than does Charles Manson or any other murder you might name. The very good news is that our salvation has nothing to do with our obedience to the law, but comes wholly by the gracious gift of God and what Christ accomplished on our behalf. So, as we do each week, I'm going to invite you to the table to have a re-encounter with the Lord Jesus as you contemplate His perfectly sinless body broken for us and his perfectly righteous blood spilled for us. As as you do that this morning, I want you to understand and realize that when Jesus hung on the cross to initiate the reconciliation of all things to the Father, he represented not just righteous Abel and faithful Uriah and all the other victims of murder that have ever lived he also at the same time took the place of Cain and of King David, of the woman who has had an abortion, and of every other perpetrator of murder, including you and me. Let's pray. Lord, uh, to echo the words of the prophet Isaiah, we are an unclean people living in the midst of an unclean people in government. And we confess our complicity in the horrible murder of unborn children made in your image that uh, we've tolerated for the last 45 years. Lord, we come to you broken and in need of your grace. And we praise you and thank you that you have offered it to us, that you don't look at our righteousness. But that, Father, when you look at us, you see the righteousness of your Son imputed to us without merit or favor, but just because you love us. We thank you for that. May your Holy Spirit guide and move us to better defend the value of human life as you have called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.